title of our message tonight is simply, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. And by way of introduction, I just want to simply ask you to feel this sentence in. Just don't say it out loud, but in your mind, just feel this sentence in. I want, and you fill in the blank. I want, and you can fill in the blank. The possibilities are endless, aren't they? It's limitless. Uh, It's an open-ended statement. I want, and just fill in whatever your heart's desire is. You may have thought, I want more money. More money's good sometimes, but it can be a a curse sometimes. You may have said, I want better health. You've got a lot of bills. You may say, I want to be debt-free. You've got kids or grandkids. Your, Your want may be, I want to see them saved. I want to see them follow Christ. I want to see them make heaven their home. Again, the possibilities are endless. But when we go to Philippians chapter 3 verse 10, you'll notice how Paul finishes that statement. He's not wanting more help. He's not wanting more money. He's not wanting more stuff. He's not wanting power or prestige. He says this in Philippians 3 verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings becoming like Him in His death. The desire of Paul's heart, the longing of his life was to know Christ. Now here's the thing, Paul already knew Jesus. Paul was already a saved man. He had encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. But the greatest desire for him was to know Christ more fully and deeply in life. I believe we could all agree tonight that there's a lot of wonderful things in life. There's nothing like a new baby being born that causes us to celebrate. But knowing Christ is the greatest thing of all. Amen? It doesn't matter what you gain in life. It doesn't matter what you earn in life. It doesn't matter what you achieve in life. The greatest thing of all is knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Nothing can compare to knowing that you belong to Him and you're on your way to heaven. Here in Philippians chapter 3, Paul basically tells us the goal of the Christian life. It's to know Jesus. It's to grow in our walk with Him. It's to strive to seek Him and be near to Him and let Him do His work in our hearts and in our lives. You see, after his conversion, Paul's values were flipped upside down. What he once longed for, he now despised. What he once wanted, he now said, I don't want that anymore. I want Christ. You see, all of a sudden, everything that he thought was important, when he compared it to knowing Jesus, he said... It's worthless. And can I just say to us tonight that whatever you give up for Jesus doesn't compare to what you gain through Jesus. Amen? Look at what he said in Philippians 3 verse 8. He says, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. There on your notes, I want you to circle that word rubbish. You've got a pen, circle that word rubbish. The Greek word is skubala, and it's used only here in the New Testament. It literally means dung or excrement, and that's how the King James refers to it as, I count all things as dung. That's what it means. And that might seem a little uh, out there for you, but that's what it means. 
So Paul, as he looked at his background, as he looked at his life, he said, it's all dung in my eyes compared with the privilege of knowing Christ my Lord. That everything I've gained, I count it as a loss, and it's all rubbish, it's all trash, it's all garbage, it's all dung compared to knowing Jesus. So I want to ask you tonight before we get into our points, is Jesus more important than everything else? Is Jesus more valuable to you than everything else you have in life? Is He more valuable than your possessions? Is He more valuable than even your family? Is the goal of your life to know Jesus? That should be what we strive for. Listen, not just to know Him in a salvation way, but to know Him in a personal way. To walk with Him and have a relationship with Him. Because I'm afraid sometimes if we aren't careful, we confuse relationship with religion. And it gets us in trouble. I want to know Christ. Not just in a religious way, I want to know Him in a relational way. Because I want prayer to be relational and not something I do out of obligation. I want reading my Bible to be something that's relational, not something I have to do to check off the box. I want to know Jesus. Amen? And so tonight I want to give you some ways on how we can know Jesus Christ, how we can grow in our walk with Him and experience His presence and power in our lives. So number one, Put your confidence in Christ, not yourself. Put your confidence in Christ, not yourself. The first step, the first key to knowing Christ and experiencing His work in our life is you have to put your confidence in Him and not in yourself. Look at Philippians 3, verse 2 through 6. He says, Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. You'll notice in verse 2 that he starts out by issuing a warning against false teachers. He calls them dogs. Now let me just say this. This isn't a household pet that you have around your home. These were dogs that would roam the streets at night. They were scavengers. They were vicious. And he compares these false teachers as dogs. They were dirty. They were unclean. They were harmful. He says they're men who do evil and they're mutilators of the flesh. You see, apparently there were professing Jewish believers that taught you had to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. They said you need to be circumcised in order to be accepted by God. And that's the teaching that Paul has refuted many times over as you read his letters. That people saying you've got to add something to Jesus. You've got to add circumcision, add the law, add the ritual, add the ceremonies in order to be saved. And Paul refutes that. Paul considers that heresy. And you see that when you read about it in verse 3. He says, hey, we're, we're the true circumcision. We worship because of the Spirit of God. We rejoice in Christ and we don't put any confidence in the flesh. You see, it's not a matter of physical circumcision. It's a matter of spiritual circumcision. That your heart has been changed. That you're a new creature in Christ. That's what it comes down to. Not something that's happened externally, but something that's happened internally. Amen? And in verse 4, Paul shows us what he used to put his confidence in. He begins to list off his credentials and his achievements and everything that he had going for him. And as you look at this list, 
The same things that Paul had confidence in, the same things that Paul boasted in, are the same things that people today continue to put their confidence in instead of Jesus Christ. So I want to give you two quick things not to put your confidence in. Two things not to put your confidence in. Number one, don't put your confidence in your background. Don't put your confidence in your background. Paul says he was circumcised the eighth day. Literally, he was an eighth dayer. That means he kept the law. In other words, he wasn't a proselyte, but he was a true Jew. He was a Jewish man, a man who embraced the Jewish faith. His parents fulfilled the requirement of the law, and he was raised in that faith from infancy. If you were a true Jew, by the eighth day of a male being born, you circumcised that male. That's what God gave Abraham in the Old Testament. He says he's of the people of Israel. That means he's of Jewish descent. His family weren't Gentiles. They they didn't convert to Judaism. He was a full-fledged Jew by birth. He says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was a well-respected, well-regarded tribe of Israel. In fact, Benjamin is the only one of Jacob's sons who was born in the Promised Land. Saul, the first king of Israel, came from the tribe of Benjamin, and it's quite possible that uh, Paul's parents named him Saul. That was his original name before his conversion, after King Saul. Benjamin was the only one of the twelve tribes that stayed with Judah when the northern tribes broke away from the south after King Solomon. And then he says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. You see, in that day you had Hebrew-speaking Jews and you also had Greek-speaking Jews. But Paul spoke Hebrew and Aramaic as well as Greek. He, he, he didn't give up his culture. He didn't give up his background. He didn't give up his ethnicity. He was a man that was through and through a child of Israel. That's who he was, a people of, uh, of the Hebrews. And so if anybody had conf- a reason to put confidence in his background, Paul did. His credentials were impeccable. You couldn't find anybody any better than Paul. But here's the thing. Paul understood my background can't make me right with God. That even though I might be an Israelite, even though I might be of the tribe of Benjamin, even though I've got all of this rank and nobility and all of this race, uh, this blood running through me, it doesn't make me right with God. And so that's the first thing. You can't put your confidence in your background. You can't put any confidence in your heritage. You can't put any confidence in your tradition. It will not make you right with God. But here's the second thing that you don't put your confidence in. Don't put your confidence in your achievements. He says in verse 5 again, in regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. He says, as for zeal, as for passion, he said, I persecuted the church. He says, as for righteousness, legalistic righteousness concerning the law, he said, I was faultless. You see, the things that I listened before, those are things that were his by heritage because of who he was and how he was born. But these things here, these are things that he pursued. These were things that he sought to go after. His achievements, his accomplishments. You see, he was a Pharisee. He studied under Gamaliel, one of the most respected Pharisees in all of Jerusalem. And you see, as a Pharisee, he knew the law. He knew it inside and outside, backwards and frontwards. And as a Pharisee, he lived, breathed, and ate the law for breakfast. You weren't going to outdo Paul when it came to the law. He said, being zealous, he persecuted the church. You see, there may have been other people during that day. They complained about the church. They complained about people preaching Jesus. But Paul made it his mission to destroy the church. In fact, when Stephen, the first martyr, was stoned to death, Saul was there giving his approval and actually holding the coats of the guys doing the stoning. 
If you read in Acts chapter 8, it's not in your notes, but Acts chapter 8, it talks about how he began to wreak havoc on the church and destroy the church. And he would go and seize men and women who professed the way and drag them into prison. That's how zealous and passionate he was for what he thought was right. You see, he thought he was doing God's work. He says as for the law, legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. Think about that. Another way to translate that is blameless. In other words, whatever the law said do, Paul did it. He dotted the I's, he crossed the T's. He didn't leave anything out. You see, his resume was impressive. And if anybody could have had confidence before God, Paul's the man. His background, his record were flawless. He, he was the MVP, so to speak, in the game of righteousness. But Paul said none of these achievements could get me to know Christ. None of these achievements could cause me to obtain salvation. You see, Paul, he was a Jewish blue blood. He was as in as you could be in the first century. He had it all. Jewish descent, Jewish education, social standing, a reputation for the law, and a reputation for moral purity. And so here's the question. What more could you want? What more could you want? Paul had everything going for him, but what more could you want? And here's the thing. That's the point of this whole passage. You see, if being religious could get you to heaven, Paul would have had a guaranteed front row seat right next to Moses and Elijah. His spiritual resume was as good as you're going to find. And you see, here's the point. Most people in the world stop right there and they go no further. They'll take a look at their spiritual resume and figure it's not too bad. We'll look at our background, we'll look at our heritage, we'll look at our achievements, we'll look at all that we're able to do and think that, hey, it's not that bad. It might not be as impressive as Paul, but it's good enough to squeak into heaven. You've got people that they'll go to church occasionally, they'll try to be good, they haven't killed anybody, they haven't stolen anything, they try to help other people in need, and they figure that somehow it's all going to work out in the end. Can I tell you what kind of religion a lot of people subscribe to? The do the best you can religion. They figure as long as you do your best, God will smile at you one day, shake His head, and say, come on in. And you hear me, that will leave you empty. And it will leave you missing eternity. Most people sincerely believe doing your best is enough. And that's how Paul once thought of himself. I'm doing my best. Somehow God's impressed with me. But look at what he says in verse 7. He said, whatever was to my profit, whatever was to my gain, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. He said, I've got all of this stuff going for me. But I count it loss for the sake of Christ. He's using accounting terms here. And we, we think this way too. We believe that our good things somehow count for us in God's favor and our bad things count against us. And so we'll take both columns and we'll have the good column and the bad column and we hope that somehow the good column outweighs the bad. That's what Paul used to do. But when he met Jesus, here's what he did. He took everything in the good column, he put it all in the bad column, everything he'd been placing his confidence in, he moved it up to the bad column and said, hey, whatever profit I had, whatever gain I had, I count it loss for the sake of Christ. Now just think about that. There was nothing wrong with being a Hebrew of Hebrews, being of the people of Israel. 
There's nothing wrong with being circumcised on the eighth day. There's nothing wrong with him wanting to be a Pharisee and obey the law. Nothing wrong whatsoever with any of those things. But he says, I'm going to lay aside my heritage, my background, my training, my family heritage, my years of education, my reputation, my passion, my moral character. I'm going to lay all of that aside because I want to know Christ. You see, he's saying it doesn't matter at all. All of that's done to me. It's rubbish. It's garbage. The only thing that matters is knowing Jesus Christ. Why would Paul come to such a radical conclusion? You see, when we read about rubbish, we we assume he's talking about things God calls sinful. Isn't that what goes through your mind? See, for most of us, the rubbish of life, the garbage of life, it involves angry thoughts or bad habits or sexual immorality or idolatry or racial prejudice or an uncontrolled temper or all the other bad stuff we know is wrong. That's what we consider rubbish. If I said to you, get the rubbish out of your life, get the garbage out of your life, get the junk out of your life, how many of you would instinctively think about your ethnic heritage or your good works, your religious background, or maybe even your years as a Sunday school teacher? What Paul thought. To him, all that stuff was rubbish. Because none of that could get him where he needed to be. Paul was basically saying here, anything that keeps you from Christ, it's garbage, it's dung, it's filth, no matter how good it looks to you. You see, Paul refused to put confidence in himself. And he chose rather to put his confidence in Jesus. He stopped trusting his own righteousness so he could have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. He says, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. We might not get done with the first point tonight. That will be, be okay. i got a lot to cover. Paul understood, if I'm going to gain Christ, if I'm going to know Jesus... My confidence can't be in myself. It can't be in my background, in my achievements. It has to be in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. You see, if we're going to know Christ, if we're going to experience Him and walk with Him, you've got to come to the conclusion that no works you can do can earn your salvation. That's the only way you'll be saved. That's the only way you'll know Jesus is get to the place where you come to the end of yourself, stop trusting what you can do, and trust in Jesus and accept His righteousness. Jesus says this in Luke 5.32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, Jesus didn't come looking for self-righteous people. He didn't come looking for people that think they could earn their way to God through their good works. He came for people that were broken and hurting and messed up and realized, hey, without Him I have no hope. So I say to us tonight, if you believe that your background, your works, your achievements will somehow make you accept the Word of God, you cannot know Christ. You've got to die to self and say it's all about Jesus. He's the answer. He's the way. It's not me. Put your confidence in Him, not in yourself. In fact, let me just say this. Religion without Christ is dangerous. In fact, there's a lot of people today trusting in their religion to get them to heaven and it's not going to work. You see, even though Paul had everything going for him without Christ, he would have spent eternity apart from God. 
didn't matter how zealous he was. It didn't matter that he was trying to keep the law and be morally pure. Without Jesus, he'd have been lost. You see, religion without Christ will send you to hell. You can say prayers all you want to. You can be baptized. Take the Lord's Supper. Put a million bucks in the offering plate. But if your confidence isn't in Jesus, none of that does you any good. But let me also say this about religious people. You have some that have a religion of Christ plus faith. They're trusting in Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus church membership. Jesus plus attending church services. Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus giving money. Jesus plus reading my Bible. Jesus plus just fill in the blank. Adding something to Jesus. Can I tell you, if you add anything to Jesus whatsoever, that's not the gospel. If you add anything to Jesus, it's not grace. There's a lot of people got religion plus Jesus tacked on thinking that somehow they're going to be okay. In fact, instead of singing Jesus paid it all, they, they say Jesus paid most all of it because they're trying to add their part to what Jesus did. Listen, Jesus paid it all. He cried on the cross, it's finished. That means there's nothing I have to do. I'm accepted in the blood. By faith in Him, by grace through faith, always say, not of works, lest anyone should boast. I can't have confidence in my background. Listen, I grew up in church. I've not, I, I, I could probably count on one hand how many times I've missed church in my 39 years of living. But without Jesus, I'd be going to hell. My confidence isn't in myself. My confidence is in Jesus. And some of you may want to preach Why are you so passionate about this? Because I don't want church people sitting on pews week after week thinking they're okay because of what they do and miss out on what Jesus did. Listen, if you talk more about what you do rather than what Jesus did, there's a problem. Your confidence is in yourself, not Him. If you talk about how much money you give and how much you pray and how much you fast and how often you come to church and how much you help people and you never mention Jesus and how He washed you and saved you and filled you with the Spirit, you're in trouble. It's Him. It's Jesus only and only Jesus. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. Because Jesus said to Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. achievements mean nothing to God. Your best day of living means nothing to God if you don't have Jesus. I know I'm getting stirred up tonight, but I want this to really be impressed upon your heart that it's Jesus. That the only hope of heaven you have is Jesus. Matthew 5 and 3, Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit, that means those that are spiritually bankrupt. Those that have come to recognize I have nothing to offer God and I'm nothing but a spiritual beggar. 
And if you don't see yourself as a spiritual beggar who has nothing to offer to God, you can't know Him. But Paul came to the place where he realized, I'm spiritually bankrupt, and I have nothing to offer to God. I have nothing that's acceptable to Him. And I'll throw it all away as trash and rubbish and dung so that I can gain Jesus. The lesson from these verses is clear. Put your confidence in Christ, not your background. Put your confidence in Jesus, not your achievements. If you want to know Jesus, walk with Him. Your confidence has to be in Him, not in yourself. Let me give you the second thing. You have to make Christ the priority of your life. You have to make Christ the priority of your life. Look with me again at verse 8. He says, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul says that he not only considers his prophets a loss in order to gain Christ, but everything. You see, it's not enough just to count those things that were to your prophet as lost. You're to consider everything a loss compared to knowing Christ. That means you've got to give up your background, your accomplishments, your bank account, your possessions, and even the things that you care about most deeply, your children, your spouse, your family. Everything has to be considered loss. Jesus has to be priority. Jesus has to be more important than everything else. As I've said, knowing Jesus is the greatest thing in all the world. The greatest thing you could ever experience is to walk with Him and have fellowship with Him and relationship with Him. But can I tell you the reason many people aren't growing in their walk with God, aren't growing in intimacy with God, is because everything else isn't done to us. Let me say it again. The reason we don't grow, the reason we don't change, is because we hold too tightly to everything else and think it's as important as Jesus. It's not. It should be done because let me tell you, no matter how much you gain, how much you achieve, one day you're going to leave it all behind. You see, many times our career, our family, our education, our entertainment, just fill in the blank, are more important than Jesus. But Paul says he considers everything lost in order to gain Christ. I'm going to give up everything, count it as a loss, so that I can know Jesus. Jesus says this in Matthew 5.8. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That phrase, pure in heart, you can also translate it, those that are single in mind. You see, those that focus on God above everything else will gain Him. If you seek Him, you'll find Him. Amen? You see, it's the pure in heart, the single in mind, who sees God and who experiences Him daily. You see, that was Paul's passion. That was Paul's pursuit. That was his priority, knowing Jesus. And he was willing to give up everything, forsake all, to follow Jesus. You see, that's one thing I admire about the Apostle Paul. As zealous as he was before he met Jesus, he was as zealous after he met Jesus. You see, the one who once persecuted the church knew what it was to be persecuted. And he didn't regret it. Let me just ask you tonight, what would happen in your walk with God if you went after God as much as you did after sin? revival it quite it 
pursued Him as much as we pursued our, our drinking and our fornicating and all the stuff we used to do, if we pursued Him as much as we used to pursue that stuff, what do you think would change in our lives? We'd see God like we've never seen Him before. See, many times we're stagnant in our spiritual life because we've forgotten that Jesus should be the one thing. And we're concerned about many things. And I tell you, Jesus needs to be the one thing in your life. He wants to be the center of your life. He wants to encompass your life. He wants to be the focus of your life and mine. We've got a lot of things and we just want to tack Jesus onto it. Here's how most of us live out our faith. We want to do what we want to do and we just want God to bless it. Tack Jesus onto it. That's not how it works. When you get Jesus, you give up everything else and you follow His will and His plan and do what He wants you to do. And if that means you have to give up everything to follow Him, you give up everything to follow me. In fact, He said, he said you need to love me more than you do your mother and father. In fact, your love for God needs to be almost hatred towards your family. That's not how we live, is it? Can I tell you what our problem is? We want to gain Christ without losing anything. We want all that He has for us, but we don't want to give up anything. We don't want to change. Listen, that's not how it works. Listen, if you get married, you stop dating other people. When I married my wife, I made a vow, I'm not going to date anybody else. I give up every other woman because you're the one woman for me. Right? You take a professional athlete, when he gets traded to another team, he can't play for both teams. He has to give up the other team. And guess what? When you get on Jesus' side and Jesus gets in you, you've got to go with Jesus and give up everything else. See, when Jesus is a priority in your life, He'll be more important, more precious, more delightful, more beautiful than anything else in the universe. And I want to say to us tonight that if you believe in Christ but somehow your walk with God grown boring, you haven't believed in the Jesus I believed in. Jesus isn't boring. Walking with Him isn't dull and dreadful. It's the greatest thing you'll ever do. And if you're here tonight saying, hey, I love Jesus, I believe in Jesus, but somehow you're bored, you didn't believe right. He has to be a priority. He has to be first. He has to be everything. And everything else has to be done. It has to be rubbish. Let me give you this third thing. You have to continually cultivate your desire for Him. You have to continually cultivate your desire for Him. You see, many times we start out very passionate full of passion and excitement for God like the honeymoon. And then it, it wanes, wanes and fades and kind of disappears. Like the church of Ephesus have this one thing against you. You've abandoned your first love. You don't love me like you used to. That's where a lot of believers are today who sit on church pews. I believe people that's going to heaven but they just don't love Jesus like they used to. They don't have the same desire they once had for Him. But in verse 10, 
Paul said, I want to know Christ. The power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. See, the reason some of us don't grow in our walk with God, the reason some of us don't have an intimate fellowship with God is simply because we don't have a desire. We don't desire Him. I want you to look at how David described his desire to know God. Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2. He says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? David has this desire to know God like a deer panting after streams of water. Desperate to know God. My soul thirsts for you. My soul longs for you. Let me ask you, how long has it been since you could say that your soul was longed for God? When's the last time you can honestly say that it's good to be in the house of God and you really mean it? You long to be in God's house. And you're not just here checking off a, a box. Think about Moses. He spoke to God face to face like a man speaks to a friend. And yet Moses says, show me your glory. Desperate for more. I mean, what? how closer can you get? I mean, you... Speak to God face to face like you're interacting with a friend and yet He wants, God, show me your glory. I'm afraid this kind of desire that Paul had, the desire that David had, the desire that Moses had, you don't find it in many Christians today. We're desperate for many things in life other than God. We want more stuff, more possessions, more power. We we want better health. We want want all these other things. We desire these things, but we don't have a desire for God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. You see, the most righteous thing you can desire in life, the most righteous thing you can want in life, is to know God more, to hunger for His righteousness, to hunger be in right relationship with Him. And He says, if that's your desire, I'll feel it. You see, He doesn't promise prosperity and health. He doesn't promise that everything's going to go your way. But He says, if you'll hunger for me, hunger for my righteousness, hunger to know me, I'll meet that desire. Can I just say to us tonight that the reason we aren't as close to God as we ought to be is because we don't have the desire and because we don't have the passion we once did. And listen, you can't blame anybody else. Now take responsibility for yourself. We don't have the hunger that we need because we're so caught up in everything else. So how do we cultivate a desire to know Jesus? How do we cultivate this desire to, to know Him in a more intimate way? Let me give you just a few things. First of all, we cultivate our desire for Christ by being with Christ. We cultivate our desire for Christ by being with Christ. You see, the more that you spend time with Him in prayer, in His Word, fellowshipping with the saints, the more you will desire Him. But the more you neglect Him, guess what's going to happen? The less you will desire Him. If you're too busy to spend time with God... That's why you won't have a desire for God. 
Because you don't make time, take time to spend with Him. Now let me just say this, starting out, spending time with God. You may not have that desire to begin with. Because often you have to act your way into a feeling. Sometimes you may not want to pray and read your Bible, but here's the thing, if you'll ever start, the feeling and the desire will be there. And you will not want to stop. But if you want that passion to continue to grow in your life, you have to have a desire to be with Christ. You've got to learn to spend time with Him. Amen? But number two, we, can t- we cultivate our desire for Christ by being around believers who desire God. You see, there, there's something about being other people who are on fire for God. It makes you want what they have. Proverbs 13.20 says this, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffer harm. Got it? The greatest thing, the wisest thing you can do is the desire to know God. And if you'll get around people who are wisely seeking God, pursuing God, going after God with everything within them, guess what? You'll be wiser and your desire for God will grow. Get around the right people. Get around some people that are contagious. Get around some people that are on fire. It'll stir something inside of you. Listen, all it takes is a spark. A spark. All it takes is one person who'll pursue God and it can change everything in a church service. Amen? You just get one person that has a passion to worship God regardless of what everybody else thinks and regardless of what everybody else says and all of a sudden you'll see the atmosphere change in the church house. But can I tell you what we do sometimes? We come to church and we sit here and it's like, well, I don't want to raise my hands because nobody else is raising their hands. I don't want to sing out loud because nobody else is singing out loud. Guess what? You don't raise your hands for them. You don't sing for them. You do it all to the glory of God. Listen, I'm not here for the approval and applause of people. I'm here for God and Him alone. And listen, if you don't like my shout, if you don't like my praise, if you don't like the worship, find you another pew. Go, go in front where you can't see me. Because He's been too good to me for me to sit back and be dead and dull and boring. This should be the most exciting place in all the world. But we come, we act like we ain't got no life. The thing on Saturday is we'll, we'll, we'll holler about a football team. Or we'll leave church after sitting there being dead and dull and go home and flip on a race and holler about a bunch of tracks going around, cars going around a track 150 miles an hour. Listen, if we can shout for somebody who scores a touchdown or somebody who can run a car around a track, why can't we shout for Jesus? Why can't we worship Him? Take somebody famous, whoever it is you want to. Listen, if they they were to show up at church on Sunday, we knew they were coming, we'd want to roll out the red carpet. Whether we agreed with them or really liked them, if we knew they had some kind of importance or status, we'd roll out the red carpet and we'd make a fuss over them. But here's the thing. Every time we come to the house of God, the King of glory wants to be in our midst and He's here. And we should roll out the red carpet. We should make a fuss over Him. 
Shouldn't we? I want to see him high and lifted up like Isaiah in his train fill the temple. I want the glory of God to show up in this place. But guess what? We've got to have a desire to come meet with Him. We've got to have an expectancy that when we show up, God's going to meet us where we are. And let me say for you personally, when you open your Bible and when you get on your knees to prayer, you walk in your backyard to pray, you need to have an expectancy that God's going to meet you there. That right, no, no, no other saint might be around, but listen, you got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And when all of you get together, listen, you can have a great time. But you've got to have that desire. Let me give you this third thing. We, we, we cultivate our desire for Christ by becoming like Him in His death and resurrection. We, we cultivate our desire for Christ by becoming like Him in His death and resurrection. Look at verse 10 and verse 11 again. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. Notice this, becoming like Him in His death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul says, I want to know Christ. Now he already knows Him. He's already been saved. He's been born again. He's known Christ for nearly 30 years when he writes these words. He knows Him now better than he did the year before. But he says, I still want to know Christ more. He wants to know Him more intimately. He wants to know Him more fully and deeply with each passing day. But he not only says, do I want to know Christ? He says, I want to know Christ in the power of His resurrection. How many understand there's power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That means there's power available to us to live for Him the way He wants us to live. Now this power, it doesn't come from you. It comes from God through the Holy Spirit at work in you. So He wants to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. But he also says, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. You see, Paul wants to know Christ more than anything else. And that means he wants to know the suffering as well as the power. You see, many times we don't get that far. We want the power, but we don't want the suffering. We want the resurrection, but we don't want the suffering. You see, the reason we never take hold of the power that's available to us to live for Christ is because we want resur- res- resurrection power. But listen, you can't have resurrection without dying first. You see, we want power for Christian living, but we aren't willing to die to ourselves and our own agendas. You see, Paul lived for Christ because he died to self. He lived for Christ because he died to himself. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But it's not I, it's Christ living in me. You see, that's the secret to knowing Jesus. It's not about how well you live, it's about Christ living in you and through you. Paul took up his cross. He followed Jesus. And if we're going to know Jesus and gain Jesus, we've got to die daily. We've got to die to what we want, die to our, our priorities, die to our agenda, die to our schedule. And say, I want to know you. When closing, the problem that many people have is that they're still playing in the rubbish heap of life and their hands are covered with the dung of earthly gain that counts for nothing compared to knowing Jesus. But for Paul, what he gained was far more than what he lost. That's why he had joy. I mean, as you read the book of Philippians, he's in a jail cell and he uses the word joy or rejoicing close to 16 times. 
Why did he have so much joy? Because his life didn't depend on the cheap things of the world, but on the eternal values of Jesus. See, he wasn't living for this world. He was living for the world to come. That's why he had so much joy. And listen, if you want to have more joy in your life, you've got to stop living for this world and living for the one to come. That's how you find joy. That's how you find peace. That's how you find contentment when you live for Christ and the world to come. Jesus said this over 2,000 years ago. Mark 8, 36. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world? You see, we're all on a journey from time to eternity. Everyone's going to live forever. We're on this journey from time to eternity and sooner than you think, you're going to be in a casket and there's going to be people gathered around weeping over you. What are they going to say about you then? What are they going to put on your tombstone? He spent his life on things that didn't matter. Or he met Jesus and his life was never the same. I want my life to never be the same. I want to give you three closing questions. These questions I hope will prick you in your heart and cause you to evaluate your life. Number one, is there anything in your life that is drawing your attention away from Christ? Is there anything in your life that's drawing your attention away from Christ? For Philippians, they had to deal with false teaching. But for you, it could be a relationship. It could be something in your past that you're holding on to. It could be weary or uncertainty, worry or uncertainty of the future. Whatever it is, you need to get your eyes on Jesus and guard yourself against anything that would take your attention away from Him. Number two, when it comes to acceptance before God, and what are you placing your confidence? When it comes to acceptance before God, what, and what are you placing your confidence? Can I tell you there's only two options? You're trusting self, or you're trusting Jesus. That's it. Are you trusting your background, your achievements, or are you trusting in Jesus who died for you on the cross? Are you trusting your own righteousness? Or are you trusting in the perfect righteousness of Christ? Can I tell you something about our righteousness? It's nothing but a mixed bag of half successes and total failures. In fact, the Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. On your best day, it won't be good enough to make you acceptable to God. Do you understand that? So why would you trust your own righteousness when you have the righteousness that comes from God by faith in Jesus? Let me just say it this way. When you stand before God on the day of judgment, do you want to stand before Him in your righteousness or the righteousness of Jesus? I want to be found in Christ. I want to be found, when I stand before Him on that final day, I want to be found in Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Not saying, look what I did, God. I want to talk about, look what Jesus did for me. And you've got to get that nailed down tonight. You, you don't trust anything you do whatsoever. Listen, listen. being saved results in praying. It results in reading your Bible. It results in helping people that are less fortunate. It results in coming to church and doing all the things that we know good Christians ought to do. But listen, don't you ever place your confidence in any of that to earn favor with God. Because it will not get you to heaven if that's what you're trusting in. And I'm just going, you've heard me say this before, and I'll just say it again. Too often, if we aren't careful in holiness churches, Pentecostal churches, we focus on all those things, those external things. And it'll leave you short. You know that you know that you know Jesus, that He has saved you, that you're resting in Him.
I'm resting in Him. As you've heard me say before, I, I, listen, I wouldn't give the best 15 seconds of my life to get me into heaven. Because it takes perfection. And none of us can do it. Let me just say this, at the, maybe for the sake of, thought maybe upsetting of you. Listen, we're not as good as we make ourselves out to be. On Sundays we look good and we show the part, but listen, if we followed everybody around here other six days a week, we're not as good as we make ourselves out to be. We need Jesus. Let me give you a third question. Do you want to know Christ more than anything else? Do you want to know Christ more than anything else? Listen, that should, listen, that's the greatest thing of all is knowing Jesus, knowing His forgiveness, knowing His redemption. And so why would we be satisfied with anything else? Why would we be satisfied with the garbage and rubbish and dung of life when we can have all that He has for us? Are you willing to change your values in order to know Christ? Are you willing to let go of some of your crowded schedule and set aside some time to spend with Him in prayer in His Word? Are you willing to let some of your plans and pleasures go so that you can know Jesus? You see, the reality is, I, I, I might just go ahead and step on some more toes right here, but the reality is there's more people who could be here tonight, but they're not. It comes down to priorities and what people value. You've got to make a decision. Do I want to hold on to what's over here in the world or do I want to go with Jesus? You see, whatever you give up doesn't compare to what you gain through Christ. So as I close, maybe it's a good time for you to take a personal account of your life. Take a moment, become an accountant, evaluate your life and evaluate the things in your life that matter most to you. If you say family's first, eh, family's good. Family is a gift from God. Family can't be first. Finances, we need them to survive. You've got to have money to live in this world, but eh, that's the wrong answer. You see, if I'm not careful, I can get my identity wrapped up in ministry, wrapped up in church, but eh, that's the wrong answer. And if you'll get God where He needs to be, where He's the focus and center of your life, I promise you everything else all in the place. But you ever get your focus off of Him, get Him out of the place He ought to be in your life, and you replace something else up there, you will have all kinds of chaos. Your life will be disorderly if it's not centered on Jesus. Stand with me.